Hello there. Welcome to the Female Guides Requested Podcast. I'm your host Tintin from Las Vegas. Our guest in this episode is Amy Barnes. Amy Barnes started guiding in 1985, and is a legend in the guiding world. Her love towards guiding and her dedication to hard work is infectious. I was so inspired during our conversation that I felt compelled to reflect on my own guiding to recalibrate my career path. She is also an advocate of education and mentorship. She has run the All Women Guide Pro Track in City of Rocks for about ten years. Both newer and seasoned female guides have benefited and learned much from the Pro Track and built and grown their own network of support. Amy is a walking history book. It was so fun listening to all the stories, from toughing out storms waiting for her dad when she was a little girl, accidental participation in the Snowbird World Cup competition, to multi-decade-long engagement with the outdoor and guiding industry. Now let's take this wild ride together with Amy. This thing is kind of new to me, so I'm trying to be a very good interviewer. But、uh, I probably still later I'll look through my notes, so maybe there will be some like awkward pause, pause and stuff. So just bear with me, since I'm not really new, but I really well, want to do this. I'm I'm new, and <laughs>、um, I really like it's really not my thing to be very public about much of anything. So. Oh, This、okay. is kind of a big deal for me. I'm definitely someone who flies a little under the radar and、um, kind of lead a private life. So it's a big deal for me to actually sit down and talk. But、oh, I、so、really am doing this. But I admire that、um, you're taking steps to just even gather history about women and guiding, and you know where. Our career paths have taken us, or are taking us, or can take us. So I I admire that, and I am also doing a a history talk with a woman in、um, Salt Lake City in a couple weeks about just kind of my history of climbing, which I would never really do that. I mean, I've never been anybody who's pursued sponsorship or my photo in a magazine or anything like that. That's never been on my list. So, but I'm just anxious to, or I'm excited to speak with her, just because it is just a, an oral history, and、yeah. I think that it's really a cool thing to be able to、um, to take part in. And I also feel like we have access to do that. We have a different means of recording. Nice. And the, the reason I'm doing this myself is,、um, well, so many people <clears throat> ask me, and then people want to be.、Um, Breaking into guiding, and they ask for advice. I was just like, "Well, I've been guiding, but I feel like I don't know what kind of advice I can provide them." I was just like, "I'm gonna ask for people who've been in this industry longer, or, or fellow <laughs> female guys, to gather more advice so people can feel like more comfortable." And I actually interview of、um, locally with Tracy, and she mentioned that you are a big role model. For her, she said, "Well, it's not, it's not like 
Amy does anything different than I expected, but just the way you present yourself and um, because everybody knows you've been in guiding for so long and we consider you this badass female guide and then <laughs> but then on the very fundamental level, you are also share a lot of things with us, you know, so um, make people feel very inspired. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm going to ask you a lot of questions <laughs> because I'm also <laughs> curious. It's so hard for me to find because you start active guiding even before this, the so-called internet era. So it's a little bit hard to find information. Well, I just have never been into being a part of the whole self-promotion thing. I've just, I, I, I've, I've always just worked like guiding is the end of the day. You're either, you're either a athlete or you're a guide and I'm a guide and guiding is blue collar work. Like it's work, like it's hard work and you have to show up for it and you have to make it happen. And so for me, that's always been my interest is the programs and the day out with a client that end result of, of providing a great, a great experience for people. So for me, I've always shied away from any kind of partnership or um, sponsorship, even though I've ha have very, very deep roots within the outdoor industry. And I have to say that guiding as a career has been very, um, it's been a double edged sword. I mean, I've, I started in um, at college at Idaho State University um, working for their outdoor program. The year I, I started college, they stopped their um, outdoor recreation program. But I had a boyfriend who climbed, who took me out climbing. And, and I met Jeff and Kelly Rhodes at that point who were big into Outward Bound. They worked for Sawtooth Mountain Guides. They worked for Kirk Bachman. I met Kirk at that time as well. And at, at Idaho State University, that's where we all kind of met. And I was able to get a work-study job on teaching the climbing class, which you know was about setting up top rope anchors at Ross Park, going on trips to the City of Rocks, going, you know, to the Tetons for trips. And then we did an open climbing, which was a community thing on Wednesdays where you'd provide top roping ropes for the general public. And I really enjoyed sharing knowledge and just watching the psychology. I mean, the psychology of climbing is far more important to me than the actual physical end of it to actually watch someone transform in front of you mentally and physically and watch them walk away with it a little higher brow and a sense of pride that they actually accomplished something they didn't think they could do. So my roots start with, I worked retail within the outdoor industry. I started teaching climbing and climbing with a boyfriend in Pocatello, Idaho and working for the outdoor program. And that really got me going for climbing. And then um, I did a lot of first ascents with my boyfriend at the city of rocks um, the City of Rocks is a unique climbing area. It doesn't have like a local climbing community. It's local cli 
climbing community was drawn from outdoor regions like Sun Valley, Haley, Boise, Jackson Hole, um, Salt Lake City, and Pocatello and Idaho Falls. And it really was an amazing time during the early 80s to be establishing new roots and hanging out with all of these people climbing from all these different areas. It really was a huge sense of a climbing community that those people are still my friends today. And so that's kind of how I really started climbing. But really my roots are with the outdoor industry, with um, working in retail. My home economics teacher in high school owned Rocky Mountain River Tours and she was a great mentor and influence to me, Sheila Mills. And she hired me right out of high school to run their shuttles for them up on the Middle Fork and Maine Salmon. And I was quickly fired within one month after I jackknifed the trailer and I lost my job. <laughs> so I was like, well, okay, but we're still friends today and she's still an, an incredible influence and, and female mentor. But it's like, okay, well, I guess I'm not, I'm not down for the river business, even though I spend a ton of time on the water. But uh, anyway, um, I guess getting back to, to climbing in the outdoor industry, I worked retail. And at the time, um, Black Diamond was um, moving. So I worked for Kirk in the 80s. I started working for Sajik Mount Guides in 85. And I really had nothing more than a water safety instructor credential as a climber. And then what I had learned through Kirk and Chris and Jeff and Kelly and Kirk was always he had a bunch of work going on at the city he had just gotten his permits there I'd done some climbing with him up in the sawtooth and he had work and guides just weren't showing up they had filming stuff to do survival oh the fittest was going on and so I was just kind of showing up for guiding and Back then, I mean, you have to realize in 85, you weren't guiding over five, six, five, seven for people. People couldn't climb that hard, right? Like, gyms didn't come into play until the 90s, right? The, the late 80s, early 90s, right? So now people train. Now, yes. now you have a client that actually has purpose. And back then, you know, it was just like, oh, yeah, kind of this eccentric, person who's going to hire a guide and I knew the city very well um I knew how to work within my margins of safety um and I had great mentors you know Jeff and Kelly and Chris Barnes and Kirk Bachman you know they taught me the ropes as we know the ropes to be in 1985 to 1990 right so um I was working retail, um, working as a buyer. Black Diamond moved to uh, Salt Lake City. They picked me up as a tech rep. So I would go out and do shoe demos, ski demos for them. I, you know, we sold climbing gear in our store. So I was connected in that regard. And then I was offered an opportunity to move to Salt Lake and be the assistant manager at their uh, flagship retail store so I did it and then from there they hired me to 
who run their pro purchase program. And so I developed their pro purchase program that's in play today back in the 90s. Oh, thank you. And so I kind of feel like I entered, I feel like I entered guiding in my whole career from the back door into the front door. Like if I, I just didn't really know, like I'm like this small little girl in Idaho, right? And I just really didn't know um, what was really out there and how the industry was going to blossom and grow. Um, and but I learned that working at Black Diamond. It, I'm just saying that yes. back then, is that pretty hard oh. to guide full time as uh, make your living? So you kind of have to do different jobs. I retail. And- yeah, I was, I, well, yeah, yeah. There wasn't just that much guiding, but when the guiding came up, because I had this retail background, because I had this guiding potential, I was moving in the guiding world and I'm running this pro purchase program. Black Diamond was very flexible with me on taking any guiding jobs that I could. And at that time I was still working for Kirk and Kirk had the knack of like landing really large corporate hedge fund groups that we would go out and guide and I could like put it on my schedule. I could tack it on with doing a shoe demo somewhere. So, I mean, all of that was just really like an amazing time. It was just no internet, no Instagram, no Facebook, you know, you were just out having fun and meeting people and shaking hands and having conversations. And it was all really very one-to-one and very personal and very enlightening. So I uh, I took this job as the pro purchase coordinator, and as I did that, I I met pros. I I met oh, the guiding yes. industry. I met the people who were out there, and um, I worked for I worked for Kirk and Sawtooth Mountain Guides, and then Eric Lidecker came on board um, and ended up buying the company and he's still an owner. I still have a great relationship with all of those folks. And at that time, um, I worked for Mariah Craner, who was, I have to say, one of my greatest mentors and influences. She just recently passed away. But Mariah is someone who all of us as women in the outdoor industry, whether we're in retail, whether whether we are climbers, we all stand on Mariah's shoulders. And she had impeccable taste. She knew how high to set the bar, and she always set the bar high. She always let you know that you could achieve whatever goals you wanted. And to be around her was a trajectory-changing aspect of my life. I knew then and there I could absolutely go in and do whatever I wanted, where I wanted, and I didn't, it didn't really matter. Like, I didn't really care what others thought. Like, she taught me that. So what what was her role back then? Uh, what, What did she do as a job? She, she was part of Patagonia equipment she took a job that was not a job I mean she was brilliant so she just did whatever she could do to help Avon she worked with the catalog and then when Patagonia broke up and then 
the clothing company went their separate way. The hard goods company was bought out by yeah. by the employees led by Mariah and Peter Metcalf. And right. so Mariah was the spearhead along with Peter on that. And then it became an employee owned company. And in doing so, you know, I would go to trade shows as a buyer and I would see Mariah and I would just be like, oh, my gosh, if I could just get within her bullseye, I know that I will see this world the way I need to be seeing it. And sure enough, getting a job with Black Diamond and being able to work under her tutelage and the creative and, you know, the creative and talent and of everyone who worked at Black Diamond back then, I think there was maybe 130 employees at the time. Um, you know, that was just a life changing event for me. And so I was able to work for them, run this pro purchase program. And then I had the opportunity of meeting Jim Conway, who's a pro skier and guide and avalanche forecaster out of Salt Lake City. And Conway was is a good friend and he's hilarious. He would take me to lunch once a week and bring a three ring binder of all of his ski magazine covers to reinforce to me that he was a pro and how, you know, like he's the person who should be getting this gear. And, you know, we really hadn't developed a formal sponsorship program or anything like that. But Conway and I would go climbing and, uh, you know, skiing and stuff. And then he introduced me to his boss, Doug and Emily Coombs. And Emily and Doug came to Black Diamond. And I mean, everybody is all Doug Coombs, Doug Coombs, Doug Coombs. And I was just like, oh, my God, Emily Gladstone, you are the most amazing woman I've ever met. So meeting Emily Coombs was another life-changing event for me. And we all went skiing and then we all went climbing. And I was kind of like running at the end of the treadmill at Black Diamond and kind of looking to get out of Salt Lake City. It didn't have enough soul for me because I grew up in the outdoors in a small town. So living in Salt Lake wasn't that great for me. And they asked me to be their business manager at Valdez Heli up in Valdez, Alaska. And so I was like, this is it. This is how I can guide in the summer, be a guide, and I can go get my foot in the door with ski guiding, which I grew up on skis. Okay. I started skiing at the age of five. So I was like, and skiing is a huge love and passion of mine. And so I was like, oh, I'm doing it. Like I, I, I never knew that you guided skis. Yeah. And so I cut the ripcord with Black Diamond, but still have a great relationship with everyone there and made incredible friends who I, you know, who still carry me through my day to day world today. And I went to Alaska and I got to Alaska. And here's where I'm saying that I went through the back door before coming out the front door. I start working in the office, checking people in, and every single person is showing up in a marmot jacket and K2 skis. And I'm like, oh, <laughs> okay. This is what pro programs and sponsorships are all about. I'm finally seeing this. 
Right. <laughs> but it's only taken me seven years of working this pro program to actually have it hit me in the face. And then that's when I just realized, like, you know, if you want to guide and you want to be out there in this world, there are pe people who want your services. And I needed to figure out how I was going to make all of that happen. And so I worked for Doug and Emily up until when they sold their business. And I have to say, best job in the whole world, being in charge of three helicopters. Nobody <laughs> got on a helicopter without going through me. Every day at three o'clock, I got in the jump seat. I got to ski terrain every day. Funnest group of people I've ever worked with. And we just laughed. And I didn't realize how intrepid everyone was and what was actually happening at the time until later on when I had time to reflect on stuff after I had left working in Alaska. So how long so after, have you worked there? How long have you I worked there? I worked there from 95 to 2001. So six years. Six years, yeah. Six seasons. And then I was guiding. I was like, okay, I can guide all summer now and so i was guiding all summer and then and towards the end i uh, around 2000 i decided i was going to really be in jackson and i was going to be in victor victor idaho area because i was moving out skiing, of right Moved to yeah, yeah teton it's that's the idaho side of the tetons is right. is the victor and driggs and so I uh, ended up moving over there to be closer um, to just back home and being back outside, not living in a city. And um, so I went there and I, uh, I was still working for Sawtooth Mountain Guides, but I was also trying to get to Vegas to guide as well. Okay. And so... I started working for Jackson Hole Mountain Guides. And I, in like the mid 90s, I started running these women's climbing programs at the City of Rocks called City Girls, which was named after a climb I, I established. One of my clients I met, Heli Skiing, she said, hey, well, I want to bring my friends. And so I also had some friends over at the Elephant's Perch, Nappy Neiman, who was always gathering clients for me and sending them my way at the city during the summer timeline where I was working in Valdez in the, in the winter and then guiding in the summer, basically at the city. And I had people who were bringing me clients. So I was, I was able to, to, you know, have a client base and, and keep active out there. And then the city and so I start, was just for women. Yeah, it was just for women. And we had a yoga instructor. We fired the yoga instructor because she didn't understand that she couldn't do yoga all day. And they, all the women were like, we don't want her. We just want to climb. So <laughs> we got rid of yoga really early on in the game. But um, we had such a good time. Um, and I, I fostered like, I fostered about, I'd say 15 female clients out of that. And then from there, I ended up with a really hardcore group of probably, I say, eight women 
that yes. from the late 90s to even, well, I have a, still a group of them coming out to meet me on St. Patrick's Day this, this year. Wow. But from there, I fostered a group of women that I had between six and eight trips a year out of some combination of those women, whether they were solo, whether they would come. And then I created my relationship with Mark Lamage at Jackson Hole Mount Guides in the Red Rock. And I would probably do three trips in the spring and, and three trips in the autumn with some form of that, that group and then pick up any extra guiding Mark had in between while I was there for my two or three weeks. So that was kind of how that was working and I was rolling out of Jackson. So I was, then I picked up like working in the Red Rock and I really grew up climbing at the Red Rock. I mean, I started climbing in the Red Rock in the eighties when we could go out and camp at Black Velvet Canyon yeah, I heard or you, there days. was no gate, right? No gate yeah. on the loop. You would go camp at Oak Creek. And I mean, the only thing you had to get through was all the graffiti and broken glass. And you're like, oh, I got past all the graffiti and broken glass. So now we can really feel safe and climb out here, you know? And uh, so, I mean, I had a really strong um, resume from the Red Rock and Mark was a great mentor and it was awesome working under his tutelage out there. And so that kind of developed into like, I actually had a client base at that time. Nice. And then I left, I left Valdez and went to work at Jackson Hole Mountain Resort as the kid photographer for the kid ranch. So I could get a pass and my boyfriend, (laughs) Yeah, so so I take and I had the best job. Everybody wants to take like action shots of everyone on the hill, and you're out on the hill all day taking shots. I would go in, take the little kids' picture first thing in the morning, run down, pull out the the film, throw it in the thing for the developer, go out and ski, come back in, circle all the pictures I wanted, have them printed, go up to the kids' ranch, set up my little board, and then I was just like. I, it was hilarious. I was like a carnival worker. I would like then sell all the photographs because nobody brought their camera for their kids' first dance ski. <laughs> so photographs. It's so different and then, nowadays. And then it got me out, right? And then I would go out and ski with my boyfriend all the time. And he was a backcountry ski guide. They had just opened the gates there. And so I would go and ski with him and his clients would welcome me to come out with them. And so I was getting like this firsthand job training on skiing the backcountry at Jackson Hole Mountain Resort. And he had clients that would book him for a month. And one client was particularly particularly excited to have me ski along with his daughter and then my um, soon-to-be husband as the guide. So that's how I really started ski guiding. And I applied for the job of being a ski instructor or not a ski instructor. I'm sorry, a ski guide at Jackson Hole Mountain Resort for probably five years. And then they hired me. And so that threw me into the realm of being a a mechanized backcountry ski guide. And I did that for 16 years. I just retired a few years ago, 
from that position, which was a coveted position. Like I have to say working for Valdez Heli Ski Guides was great, but getting on the first tram every day at Teton Village was epic. And, you know, I know that in your notes, um, I really didn't have any female ski clients at all. Not I had all. really male clients. Wow. So what's the reaction? Not really. I worked I worked a women's camp. I worked a female women's camp. And it was a considerable day in the backcountry. And I was working with women at Jacksonville Mountain Resort who were showing up in the backcountry with their leopard pants and fur coats and <laughs> You know, and I mean, they're all a bunch of high rollers and whatever. I'm a guide, right? Like my job is to get you through this next run without incident and have, and you're going to enjoy yourself. Hopefully you're going to enjoy yourself. Well, they didn't like that. I was just throwing down rules because of the ski conditions. And so they have a big opera party after the women's ski camps and they used to fill out handwritten forms and i watched them the one woman in the leopard pants hated me and i watched them all fill out a negative report on me like they hated me they thought i was too too controlling (laughs) and i mean it was a horrible critique and and it comes back to you right i mean it's a learning experience like i can't say that i didn't walk away from that experience not having more knowledge and learning so they basically they're like well you're not doing women's camps and i was like fine i, I don't want to work for women like that like i know there are right. more wholesome people out there who i would prefer to work for so i just started gathering up clients and i mean in january they call it manuary in jackson because all the men come out with their buddies to you know have a a five-day guys, you know, ski with your buddies. And I just started picking up clients and I never had room in my schedule to ever work another women's camp. And I never did again for skiing. And I really had a, a I have to say like, I love skiing. I love taking people out into the backcountry, And I have to say, hey, those were really great years. And I learned a lot from those men. And I learned a lot from those women And then I just was realizing, like, I'm actually doing this year round. I'm actually a ski guide. I'm actually a climbing guide. And then when I started working for Jackson Hole Mountain Guides, I was living in the area and they brought me on as a Teton guide. And that's when I was like, I'm getting all three disciplines here. And this is awesome. So then you stopped guiding full time, right? I guiding full time. So yep. when, in when about was, 2000, 2001. 2001. Okay. Yeah. 2001. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. And it was amazing. It's like, and it all kind of, kind of just transformed, but it transformed out of the cradle of really being involved in the outdoor industry and spinning a lot of plates right. to get to that. I mean, it certainly is different to get to than- that the path nowadays, like right now, it's just like, okay, this is the AMGA. So you take courses and you learn how to guide. And yeah. You got a job. And back then, yeah. you start guiding in 1985 on my nose and yep. research about that. Um, so I remember AMGA was established in 1979. So it was yep. basically, it was fairly new. Yeah. 
And so I, my, my first encounters with the AMGA was when I was running the pro program at Jacksonville Mountain Guides or, or at Black Diamond, right? So, um, of course, we open up pro deals for AMGA members. So we had to establish, like, what is a pro? And um, so in doing so, that was my interaction with them. Plus, Kirk Bachman was involved with the AMGA. But there wasn't really, like, any fostering. Like, I, I was really, like, I don't feel like anybody really saw me as a guide. I mean, I was out there doing the work. You know, but they were just like everybody was really trying to figure out how they were going to get themselves into this program and how they were going to make this work. And I mean, I was I hosted a meeting at Black Diamond. There was the AMGA and then there was this um, counter group called the Guides Association, which was led by Paul Horton. And it was they came and actually held a meeting because they were trying to break down the AMGA to see how, what the legitimacy was and stuff. And like they came and like Ken Jern was there. Tom Hargis was there. Um, I can't even remember everyone who was there, but a bunch of people who are affiliated with the AMGA today actually were looking at forming a whole nother group back then. And I hosted that meeting in the boardroom at BD and that group has hence folded because they decided that they needed the strength of one group and they all decided to support the AMGA. And I've always supported education. I just never had, I mean, I would go to guide training with Sawtooth Mountain Guides or guide training with the Mountain Guides. And sure, you're you're gathering information and sharing information. It's just like getting your first aid every two years. Like you need that information. You You need knowledge to to be a better guy. Definitely. But I never had anybody for a long time say, wow, you're a ski guide. Wow, you're an alpine guide and you're a rock guide. Maybe you should be going for your pin. No one ever said that to me, ever. So I just kept working. And then I just realized I really need to get in this program or I'm not going to be taken seriously as a guide. And I believe in the educational format of the AMGA. I do believe that it is a European program that we're trying to crunch into an American permit system, which the AMGA has their challenges with and they're working on that. But I do believe in knowledge. I do believe in sharing knowledge. And so I, I went through the rock program and I was old. So yeah, there was no way, no way. There was no way I was going to do that. There was so much controversy. There were people who were the most talented guides I knew who were getting shut down by the system. And there was so much ill will. I was like, I'm going to just put my head down and work. And I just put my head down and I worked. And then I signed up for the rock program in Joshua Tree and Hargis and Nidever and uh, uh, Fox. He had Fox Mountaineering. I can't remember his first name. He was one of our instructors. Adam. And oh, Casey Baum. Adam Fox, right. And yes. then Casey Baum was also an instructor. And I went to that and I was like, whoa, okay. I can move through this program quickly. 
like I saw people coming in from gyms, from outdoor programs, people who had no experience guiding. Yeah, you have already I mean, my, a lot of experience. Well, yeah. and just an experience, like just to fill out my resume, I I was able to like fill out my resume with all the all the climb requirements over just the last nine months. Yeah, you know, and so boom, you know, you're in, and then I was realizing like, oh. Okay, I I can I can get through this, but it wasn't without, you know, having a bit of imposter syndrome. You know, here I am, old enough to be everyone's mom. I'm more on the level of all my instructors as far as like that. They're、wow. my so, generation. Can, so can I, I ask you how old you were then? Um, let's see. So I'm sixty now, and. Yeah, I was in my. I was. How old was I? I was in my forties. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah. I mean, forty still young. <laughs> but probably well, it's young. I mean, it's so is so is sixty. But you're just like right. Wow. I mean, I I went to high school with women who have kids your age. You know, I'm child free. But I was just like, oh, there is like a real generational disconnect here, and. I really never had like, oh, like I can just go train with you, or you know, I didn't have that that generational relationship. I see. It's kind of those... interesting for me to hear that you have the imposter syndrome because you have you actually have more experience than them. You have guided and you have climbed probably longer than those participants. Oh yeah,、right. I mean yeah, I've climbed since nineteen seventy nine. Yeah, it's the first so, time I started climbing. So you should be. Like feeling more than competent than those people. Well, but you're being judged, right? Yes. So all of that experience behind you, they're looking at that, going, "Well, she's supposed to have all this experience. <laughs> I'm gonna like nitpick, you know, and like、uh, having see,、yeah. someone who has no experience argue with you that a PAS is the same as a daisy chain, and you're just like, okay, I need to walk away from this because." <laughs> I actually have a lot of years working at a climbing company where we actually tested breaking、True. strengths,、yes. and you know, like I actually have a background there. But so anyway, so I went through the rock course and I punched that thing out in just over two years, and got my rock guide, and really, I'm kind of like in this zone where. I can still work and not, you know. I, I, I don't know. I just never got the encouragement to get a pin. It's a lot of money. I、It、had a clientele. A、yes. mm -hmm. I had a job. I've already had connections and jobs with, you know, one of the oldest guide services in America. And so I was like, I'm gonna just keep on this role. And you know, I like to make. Money. I mean, I own a house. I bought a house at a very young age, and so I have a house payment to make, right? Like, I have to fill my house with renters while I'm out living in my van, and then I got to kick them all out because I'm moving in for the winter, so I can ski. And so I,、uh, here I am today in my 60s. I don't climb 513. I've had. I'm a strong climber, but I also have a place to live. I mean, that's it's not come without calculated risks and 
a big retirement 401k happening for me. The only thing I have is everything I've made and invested. And I haven't been out just living in my van thinking, oh, I'm going to just, you know, retire and everything's going to be fine. It's like, I've made some investments. Right. <laughs> and I'm a little blown away where I'm at right now. I'm like, oh, okay, we're doing all right. But yeah, so I guess getting back to like, working for the mountain guides and being a Teton guide and going through the AMGA. And I mean, I really believe in the AMGA. I believe that we need an educational format. I think we need consistency throughout guides and guiding and, and guide services. I remember when we really started teaching a figure eight on a follow through and you're not going to teach them your bowl and that you're sport climbing on. And to have someone say to me, oh, you know, I just was climbing with Howie Schwartz and this is the same knot he taught me. And I was like, all right, that's consistency. That's how we're going to make climbing safer and we're going to have continuity as guide services. And that was a big aha moment for me. So I think it's wonderful how industry partners have come on board with the AMGA to give scholarships. I find it, you know, really remarkable how the AMGA is able to pivot and, and help with, um, you know, programs for, you know, specific programs for women, specific programs for um, uh, people who are unrepresented in the outdoor industry. You know, I think they're on the right track. They're getting their scope of practice together. Um, I guess my only thing is I just wish I would have had someone who was like, yeah, you're someone who could really be a candidate for a pin. And I just never had that. So I just put my head down and worked and basically went through the rock program. And it is a regret of mine, like as, as a 35 year guide yeah it's a regret that i don't have a pen i mean you you are just in this time that when they just established so for you you almost don't need a pen to have work but it's just kind of like oh i could but it's just to be yeah it's it's an acknowledgement of your peers right and your contemporaries and i have to say like rob has um who, who he's a great friend and he is the one who really was like, yeah, let's, let's get this going. Let's get you on the track with your rock guide. Um, and I am like this incredibly independent, willful, hard-headed person that everybody kind of just looks at me and goes, oh, she's got it all under control, where mm. maybe I don't. <laughs> <laughs> maybe, maybe you can have a check-in. Yeah. Maybe one of yeah, maybe a you know, fellow female AMGA member could check in with you. But I guess that that being said, um, working for the mountain guides, then I actually sold my place in Idaho. My husband had a place in Jackson Hole, and then I sold my place in Idaho. And when I sold my place in Idaho, I came down and bought a house in Moab. Right. And when I bought a house in Moab, Jim Ratz from Jackson Hole Mountain Guides approached me and he said, hey, you know, we've had permits here forever. Some of them have kind of fallen by the wayside. Rob Hess's uh, late wife 
Catherine Hess also bought a place in Castle Valley. And he's like, hey, man, we want to fire up the Moab branch again. And uh, can you, are you interested? And I was like, yeah. And, you know, I got to work with Catherine. So Catherine really worked on all the canyoneering stuff. I worked on all the climbing stuff. We put a rebirth into all of our permits. And we fired up the Moab branch in 2002. And so it put me in Jackson in the winter, Jackson in the summer, and Moab during the spring and fall. And I mean, it was really such an incredible time. Yeah. Like, so what can, a great schedule. Yeah. Can I backtrack a little bit? So mm -hmm. I have two questions here. Mm -hmm. that, um, so you mentioned that you have been guided for 35 and keep counting forward. And and you also mentioned that guiding is this blue collar job means that yeah. you kind of have to work really hard. And so it's physical. What's, yeah. What's your secret? So, okay. So um, can you tell me what do you find that um, the challenging part of guiding? So you call it blue collar job. And then second, I'm curious because a lot of time some people would ask me, it's like, oh, they just want part time guiding or a day think that guiding is more like a transitional job and what's your secret to keep guiding to have such a longevity? I mean, I guess it can be a transitional job. Um, for me, it never was. I really love being outside. Um, I think ski guiding in particular is not transitional. I think, I think you need to be out and you have to have your head in the snow every day. And it takes a lot of research if you're moving around to different areas to, to know snowpack, um, know terrain. And that's not part-time. It might be part-time while you're in the field, but there's definitely work and research that needs to take place in the background if for ski guiding. It's the same for alpine climbing. Um, you know, you definitely want to go in and, know know your roots i mean that's the thing i can say about the amga is it makes you become a more elegant guide right so it helps you with your prep for prepping for your day it helps you know what ropes you need for the job you want to be the most elegant you can with all of your protection and your gear and carrying only what you need so so in that respect I mean, I guess you can just shoot from the hip and, and do that. But for me, that kind of stuff takes planning. I mean, that's why we have guide notebooks and we keep track of what we're doing. Um, and for me, I was able to have, you know, for longevity, I was able to actually have this admin portion of the job as I guided. And I was able to fall back on that in case there was an injury or something went down that I needed to have, you know, more ad admin time and I couldn't be in the field. But that really didn't happen too much during my career um, to say, you know, through the through the bulk of my career, I really just had a ton of energy. And I really have been very driven since I was a child to to make things happen for myself. I'm I have seven sisters. I come from a family of eight women. I'm seven. I'm seven out of eight. And I really didn't know that women had limits. 
I wasn't raised that way. That was also and so, one of my other questions too. So now I I know the answer because you are driven. You um, didn't get put on this whatever the social society impression of women supposed to be a certain way. Because originally I was wondering at your time era, you probably work with a lot of male colleagues. So、mm -hmm. sometimes I found that female feel like they need to pretend to be tough. If they work in that environment, does that yeah? Did that happen to you, or you just naturally、um, born like tough? I was kind of tough. Like I, I mean, I think I was born an imposter. Like I have this. I'm from this Catholic family that had the perfect rhythm method up till child number five, and then there's like a five year break, and there's me, and then there's ten months and my little sister. So I booted my. Older sister out of being the baby sister, and I was always like I always felt like I was just kind of this imposter coming in on this family that was finished, and then it's like oh, well birth control's not out. It's 1962. <laughs> We got a couple more coming in. <laughs> so and then my dad was dead set he was going to have a son and he didn't. And I have to say that I was really taken under my dad's wing as. Father's daughter. My middle name's John. I went by the name of John until I was in junior high school, and all I did was hunt and fish and ski and get taken outdoors with my dad. And so, and then we skied as a family, which is amazing to think about. All ten of us out on the ski hill, like yes, <laughs> holy cow! But. Yeah, I mean, I was just, you know, I just really feel like I have like kind of this bl these blinders on that I shouldn't be able to do something. Like I just have always felt like I was capable. I learned a lot as I progressed in my career, as I chased people like Doug Coombs or, you know, people. I realized that wow, men's bodies are definitely different than women's. Right, like that stride is much faster. His gait is much bigger than mine.、Um, so I learned, like, okay, like you got to find your pace. And so for me, I just found my pace and just kept moving forward, trying to guide as much as I could, learn as much as I could, go out and do whatever new routes I could, so I could have, you know, more more climbs on my resume, so I could have more work. And then we were developing this whole program here in Moab, and、um, Jim Ratz, who was an owner of Jackson Hole Mountain Guides, who I talked to every day, and really was someone who was fostering me in my career, was killed in a rappelling accident. And and when that happened, like. The wheels kind of fell off the cart with the mountain guides, and there was just opportunities for me to pick up little pieces of work, and it all kind of went without saying. Like we were just all trying to like keep the company going, and so I was picking up a little more work and doing a few more things, and then the following year in March. Catherine was killed in a ski accident, and that was really just like so devastating. I mean, like I had a 
I mean, I have a list, a Rolodex of dead friends, like climbing and skiing are risky, but losing Jim and Catherine kind of changed just how Jackson Hole Mountain Guides was running and who was running it and who was stepping up. Like there was no, there was no job description being put out on the AMGA website. This job needs to be filled. Like we all just kind of stepped up to the plate and took over and, I mean, we're really a family. Like, Jacksonville Mountain Guides truly was a family. And we're getting bigger, and that sense of family is getting a little bit lost, but but not really. Um, so for me, I mean, I just kind of had, I feel like I kind of had this private golden ticket on having opportunity and just knowing that that's opportunity and taking advantage of it. And knowing that the only way I'm going to have a retirement is by working hard and pigeonholing money and investing. And and I've been able to do that. But like I said, I'm not a 513 climber. <laughs> well, it's like not that important as a guy. It's not like 513. Is Well, it's not that important as a person either. No, like, for yeah. me, like climbing, like I don't climb. I'm definitely someone who I don't I don't go out there and and um, climb because I'm I'm driven by my ghosts or skeletons in the closet. Like I go out and climb because I purely enjoy it. I purely enjoy being outside. I purely enjoy skiing and being out in the in the you know like try the way great way to get around the mountains in the winter is on skis. You know, it's like, oh, this is amazing. So, I mean, I ski and I climb for pure enjoyment. I love an elevated position, being up high. Like, there's nothing better. And I really love sharing knowledge, Yeah, you know. And you certainly treat it like a real career because you were talking about, okay, I enjoy this line of work and then, but I still save, invest to plan for my, say, in case... I retired and I need some financial yeah. independence. Yeah. Yeah. Great. Yeah. So, so I think right now, um, a lot of people still don't think a guiding can be a true career. So that's kind of really inspiring you. It's just like, okay, this is my job. So I'm like invested and then I will make it work. So, but I'm curious, um, a lot of people told me, well, including myself, that the balance of guiding in their personal, say climbing and ski goals. I mean, you, so you enjoy because when you climb and ski with your clients, you probably doing something different than you personal would choose. Totally. To do. Yeah. So absolutely. Have you find the dynamic and like, how do you cope with it? Well, I think that, you know, I think being able to set boundaries is really important because I know for me, if you have work coming, you don't want to, there's, there's as much work as you want as a female guide out there. You just have to show up for the work and take the work. It's there. And so, but there's always that side of you where you're like, oh my gosh, if I don't take this job, am I going to get kicked lower down on the schedule or on the, you know, on the scheduling list? Like, so there is real desire to like not miss the work, take the work, but then you have to have balance. 
you have to have balance for physical health and for your mental health. And so the way I worked in when I was ski guiding is number one, I never did operate with clients. It's like I would never go out after skiing and have a beer to beg for your tip. It's like, all right, boys, I'm out of here. Like, I got to take this high trail to get to my locker and I'm done for the day. I'll see you tomorrow. And they're like, oh, you're not going to have a beer with this? It's like, you know what? I don't drink. So, no, I'm not. And then it's like they're forced to give you your tip then and there. And then you're out of there. And then you can go home and you can, you know, go be mindless. You can go fuel your body. You can go hydrate. You can go sit in the hot tub. And then with climbing, it's not that cut and dry because we do a lot of trips where we are on with people 24 seven, right? So you can't have that space away. So what I started doing is just like blanking out days where I don't work on my calendar. It's like, no, that's my birthday week. Sorry, I don't work that week. Um, you know, I don't, you know, I take, so I would just block time out and, you know, you have to do that as well because, you have to have time for your family. I mean, my husband um, is a level four PSI instructor. He is a ski guide. And then later he became a pilot, a bush pilot late later in life. And so all of a sudden we're like, we have to make time for each other. And so that was really the foundation for setting those boundaries is that you have to set your family time. And both of us had high risk jobs. And so it was, you know, we could maybe not come back from a job to see each other, you know, especially being a bush pilot. And <laughs> so, yeah, I think it's really important to have to set boundaries. And I think it's really important to keep up on your nutrition. I think hydration is the most difficult thing to keep up with as a guide. And I think, I think it's okay to like just work day trips if you can work day trips and, you know, working with your co-guides, like in the Tetons, we work kind of in a, you know, we work out of a hut. And so you have other guides there. I think it's really good to have good communication with your co-guides on who's going to hang at the hut and then who's going to go over and work on some climbing and who's going to, you know, just go lay in their tent for a while, like. You need to have time away from your clients. And it's hard to establish that. I think it's the hardest thing, you know. Yeah, I'm sure you have found that as well, right? Yeah. I mean, in the past, if I have to do like a big camp, then I have to camp with them. Then it's a little bit hard. Yeah. They well, and who wants to easy. cook? Yes. Who wants to cook? Like, I hate cooking. For people, I'm I'm a great one burner, two burner cook. I can whip I can whip out the dinner or the breakfast, whatever. But I hate that. You know that's why like I love the mountain guides. You go to the mountain guides. The only thing I hate more than cooking is shopping. You go into the pantry, you pull all your food, you throw it in a steamer, and you serve your people, and you're done. You know, like you're not touching the food or anything. Like I just I think it's really difficult to work all day for someone and then cook for them yes yeah and it's, you know it's just it's very interesting that it's and i mean so i mean yeah anyway 
Yeah, it's hard to find a balance. And I mean, like, I'm definitely stepping away from guiding. I've definitely retired from guiding in the Tetons. Definitely retired from guiding um, skiing. I'm still working on programs that are of great interest to me. And um, I bought some land at the City of Rocks. So I'm working on developing that. That's where I see my legacy in retirement years is at the City of Rocks. And um, still being here in Moab, um, I'm definitely stepped away from managing the Moab branch. That's now a desert branch job, um, which includes Red Rock and Moab. Um, and now I'm just working on like my pet projects, like the Women's Network and ProTrack and I've spent a lot of time down at Lake Powell um, with the low water, exploring all the canyons um, and looking at the regrowth and regeneration of those canyons with the low water. And my husband and I reconnected the ancient Ute Trail down yeah, there so, last winter. So Lake Powell, so you meant those ones that they got flooded over when they have the dam? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So that's Glen. Yeah, that's called Glen Canyon. I see. Yeah. Yeah. So it goes like Green River, Colorado River join at Island in the Sky at Canyon Lands. Right. And that turns into Cataract Canyon. And then it gets dammed. Mm -hmm. And then that begins Lake, that begins Bullfrog, which right. now the water's so low at Bullfrog, you can't even get your boat in there. Uh -huh. And then Bullfrog goes into Glen Canyon. And then yes. Glen Canyon was like, if you watch like Planet of the Apes or, or Charlton Heston, the greatest story ever told, that's all footage of Glen Canyon before it was dammed. Yeah. And then you go down and then you go to Lake Powell and then there's Glen Canyon Dam and then Grand Canyon and then uh, Lake Mead or Hoover Dam and then Lake, Lake Mead. And I mean, I'm really lucky I've done... Um, nine Colorado trips, private trips. And then two of those trips have been solo with my husband. Like we're big boaters. We've, we have a cataract. We have, we've been on ocean water, open water. Like that is something that is a real love of mine. And I feel like old climbers, since we know how to tie knots and we're not afraid to climb a mast, <laughs> we maybe get to retire as sailors, Yeah, you know? So, yeah, I mean, I mean, I definitely have other interests that as I'm getting older, it's just really great to be able to expand and, and go out and explore these other areas I've been in. Yeah, so, in. so it seems like to you, maybe like when you were like younger, when you just started, you more just put more um, priority on work, and then you find that you have to set boundaries and take care of yourself. And yeah. Now you switch to some maybe more less of those overnighters with people. Yeah. 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 And, and then, I have to say, mm -hmm. Oh, go ahead. Oh, no, you go ahead. And I will ask you. Well, I guess yeah. what I'll do is I'll backtrack a little bit because I guess I did leave out kind of a poignant piece of my climbing history is, um, I did compete in the snowbird competition in 19. Yeah, I remember you. 89. The, the snowbird. And, um, yeah, when that. Yeah, and it was the second one. And I kind of was just like, oh, whatever. I went down there with Rex Hong and Sam Leitner and 
City of Rocks kind of got on the map because Snowbird was happening in this international community was coming to Salt Lake. And so they would go to the city. Okay, and, I see. And, and, so, and so, like, I was like, okay, well, I'm not, I'm not much of a competition climber or anything, but I'll go, I'll go participate. So I participated in, in the semifinals. They let me in. Like, uh, Brooke Sandal with Metolius gave me a harness. Like, it was hilarious. So I show up and we get there and I was, I always drew first. I don't know why I always drew first in those competitions, but <laughs> I drew first. And then I was like, okay, well, that's it. Like, I met Lynn and Bobby and I was so inspired by all those women. I was just like, you know, like you can really climb at a higher level. Like that's really what my take home was from all of that. Definitely. Like women can really climb at a higher level. Yes. And I was inspired to always then climb at a higher level and to always work hard to climb the best I can climb for whatever my circumstances are around me. <laughs> I was like, okay, the guys I was there didn't make the finals. And I'm like, well, there's no way I'm making the finals. And so we're all like planning to leave. And then the next thing you know, it comes up like, oh, I'm in the finals. <laughs> <laughs> I'm in the finals. That was hilarious. So, yeah. So anyway, I climbed in the finals and then uh, was asked back to go to like a Berkeley World Cup or whatever. And I mean, I think I finished like fifth or something. And I was just like, you know, this isn't really sustainable. Like, that's the way yeah, I looked at it. Back then, right? Yeah, that's right. Like competition climbing. I couldn't remember like going through Surfer Magazine and going, Okay, the absolute lowest paid surfer on the sur circuit makes $28,000 a year. There's no way the top paid climber is going to make $28,000 a year. And I was like, I'm such a capitalist. I got to go to work. Like, this is not a sustainable <laughs> venue to go to. And plus, it was like, who wants to be indebted to sponsors? And who wants to, like, talk about themselves? Like, I don't know. And I wasn't really that good of a climber anyway. So I wasn't going to make it. So it was like... Yeah, I'm, but I that, totally understand. I mean, even back then, Link Hill had to do like some TV, like funny commercials and stuff to right. make a living, right? Right. Yeah, and I have. I mean, I have had great opportunities. Like I was in some film with James Brolin called Nine One One. It was a pilot, and like every once in a while, I'll get a residual check from the Screen Actors Guild for that. That oh. pilot was played like somewhere. <laughs> Was playing somewhere in India or something, and you're like, huh, an eighty dollar check, you know? And we climbed on the Snowbird Wall. We worked with Earl Wiggins and and Kevin Swigert on that project. And then, I mean, I've had other opportunities to work with film crews and stuff. Like, I just did a project uh, a couple years ago with BYU TV here in Moab with a survival show that they had. Like the reality stuff. Yeah, yeah. And so, I mean. <laughs> I've had some really good opportunities with that, but it's like, it's also like, oh, it's, I don't know. I just need more consistent work. I like, definitely like, I like being consistent. Yeah. It's like, you know, and then you um, mentioned earlier about your pet project, the pro track and the women's network. So I'm actually really curious about the pro track. I'm feeling a regret that I didn't participate. 
<laughs> oh, I know we missed you. Um, yeah, I mean, really, the pro track started, I bet, probably 10 years ago where. So did you start it? I started it. And really what it was, it was very organic. I would call all my girlfriends, email my girlfriends, and I'd say, hey, I got these three campsites reserved at the City of Rocks this opening week of June. Let's all get together and go climbing before we all start guiding. And let's just hang out. And that's really how it started. It was just like, okay, let's just get together. And then they'd be like, hey, my friend from Tahoe's showing up. Can she join? And so we just would always have like this really just great group of fun women. And then it would be like, oh, yeah, I've got to work on the on the on the on the raise and lower drill. Who knows that we would kind of like go off track and go, okay, you need to work on that. Well, let's do it. Or someone would say, Hey, you know, I'm a little curious about what you're doing here on the, on this portion of the Grand Teton with short roping skills. So we would pick up and go do some short roping skills. And then we just would have like great fireside conversations and just actually like get to know each other so that when you're actually out in the field, you don't feel isolated from that person because sometimes women, I mean, not sometimes, it's a very real thing. There ends up being like, you know, a conflict with women or like head hitting or competition with women sometimes in the field. And it's like, we need to break down those barriers and like support each other and uplift each other and know that someone has your back. You know, I mean, I feel like guiding in the Tetons between the two guide services that work there between Exum and Jacksonville mountain guides, those guides all have each other's back. They're great relationships, but I think that we have to build really internal relationships as well. And we have to build relationships with women. I mean, that's the one thing I never felt like any female from the AMGA ever reached out to me for anything. And we've had women presidents, you know, mm-hmm. like if I were the president and a female of the AMGA, I would be, contacting every female in the industry in in that in that group you know right like I would be trying to reach out to them and so for me this pro track kind of grew into this program where the mountain guides was like hey Amy what do you need like let's put it out there let's get some other people involved and so we had members come from the AAC Miranda Oakley showed up with Mountain Hardware they're one of our partners like we've had just other women showing up from other guide services. And this last year we had a, psycho- a psychiatrist come who's working on her SPI and she worked with us with resilience, um, you know, some resilience training. And really it's just become this yearly um, pilgrimage out to the city of rocks where we're all climbing um, the mountain guides is supporting it by, you know, funding all the food and paying for the camping. And we're all just trying to get together and learn more about each other and learn more about our craft and also really do what we all really love, which is hanging out at the base of a climb and watching someone climb and send, send the route and being there in the moment with people climbing. And I just, um, this year we're kind of changing it up. Um, We're not 
just inviting women we're inviting men because i've come to this conclusion that as much as we need support as individuals as women and as you know it's just that you know as that user group we all have to learn to work with each other and i feel like if we're going to invite some of the men with the company to come and i think it's a I'm really curious how it's going to work out, but I think it's a really good idea because you can't get away from working with men as a women, as a woman. Like we have to know how to work with each other. True. And I hope that it's, I hope that we can all learn from each other, have like some days where women are all going out together, men are going out together and then we're mixing it up. But I also just want people to be able to be out in the field together and just go, I don't feel like I can't approach that person now because I've had these four days of climbing with them at the city of rocks on the pro track. So, you know, I, I want people to be able to feel like they can garner support from each other. So, um, you say the pro track start around probably 10 years ago. Well, it, it officially probably started six years ago with actually, we changed it up and really started having an open invite list. It wasn't just all my, my guide girlfriends coming I, out. But, I you know? but it was the, started very organically. So for the, say the preliminary organic four years and then the more official in quote six years. Yeah. And those years are all for female guides. And then, then this year yes. you- Yes, and then might, this year yeah. we're, we're opening it up to some male guides, so. And they're excited. Like I, I, you know, cause they're always like, well, we want to do a bro track. And I'm like, yeah, we should do a bro track and a pro track. <laughs> and I'm curious. Um, so I read, actually, I read an article on mountain hardware. So the title is sister of the road. And so they actually have some quotes from you and I have some questions that, um, so here they say, you, you mentioned that unfortunately there's not a clear path charted for women within our guide structure that we have. Um, so what do you mean by like a, a clear path? So what do you think that we can offer, say, suppose what the path should be for female guys to follow? Well, I think, I mean, I, women face, different challenges and objectives than men. I mean, um, I, I chose to be child free. I've never wanted children, but I have guide girlfriends who have children Definitely. and, you know, it's like how there's no, there's no support, you know, manual saying. that's written. There's no manual that's written on how you become a guide and, you know, a, a mother and, and still stay strong and manage your day to day and manage your risk. Um, so you're coming home to your family. I mean, there's, there's, there's nothing. Yeah, there's really not a clear chart. And I don't feel that always women are that open and, mm. um, and willing to share knowledge and, and help each other. Uh, unfortunately, like we're guides because we do have a level of competition in us right 
And I guess for me, it's like, I just want to be able to share what I know, let people know that you can make a career out of this and that we need to support each other. And however we do that through just checking in with each other um, and having a, a Zoom meeting wherever, or maybe you meet up at a restaurant somewhere in your town where you're guiding or you get together for your pro track or that you feel that you belong at the guide training and you're not intimidated. Um, I just think that, you know, there's probably not really a clear path set for men who have families and children right. as well. Like it's, it's hard because we, we have to work for, it's hard to be an independent guide in America. You know, it's yes. not really, our system's not set up that way through, you know, through our federal, federal and yeah, state lands. And so yes. we have to work for, we, yeah, we have to work for guide services. And, and so, you know, you have to work for a guide service who's really got your interest at heart. I mean, that's why I love the mountain guides. That's why I look at Exum and I look at um, Pekin and his business up at Oregon mountain guides. Like you see people who are really, you know, setting up guide services that they are trying to, you know, create a, a working environment that's sustainable for their employees, for their guides. Um, so, yeah, it's just, it's really not easy for anybody to be a guide. Right. I mean, I definitely think there's a support group is important. And I, I, I'm very curious how um, this year is going to turn out because in invite male guys to participate in the pro track because I feel that a lot of time when women entering the guiding business they always just say oh there's a lot of white male in already there and then feel intimidated but it's kind of nice to hear you said that sometimes it's probably the pressure is from potentially from other women too because the competitiveness yeah. well and I think that if women are in the guiding world and they're working alongside men and they're feeling intimidated by these, this group feeling intimidated by men, I think that men need to be made aware of what makes them intimidating, how they can soften their skills to be more approachable. I mean, I mean, look at the AMGA, like they teach us hard skills, right? We learn a lot of hard skills going through their program, but we don't learn business skills and they really don't spend a lot of time on soft skills. And so I think if, if we can learn as an entire group, how to have more compassion and how, how to look at someone and realize like, oh, okay this person doesn't think like this. Like, is this person an artist or is this person an engineer? How is this person actually, what's their thought process? Or, you know, we all see that, you know, maybe someone has something going on in their personal life and we might want to pick up a few pieces for them. I think it's just about realizing that as a guide, you're not the only person there. And one thing I've learned through guiding is when I'm with a client, clients want to ask you about yourself and they want to say, Oh, what about this? What about this? Oh, tell me about you. 
I always flip that conversation. My conversation mm -hmm. flips to, oh, let's talk about you. Because really, there has to be a sense of humility to be able to engage people's trust. And yes. I don't really want to hear, I don't want to hear about me. Yeah, I want to hear about them. You actually, you and about so many times you, you go out with young guides and they're just like, me, 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 <laughs> uh, enough about me. What do you think about me? And you're just like, wow, okay, let's figure out the client because this is the person we're trying to figure out here, right? I mean, I like, really like the, what, the, what, the makes what this... you just said. Yeah, because I found that one of the biggest challenge when I just uh, start guiding is um, because I didn't grow up in the States. So I was really worried that I don't know how to have a conversation with my client. And that would be actually a very important soft skill to learn to, you know, how to ask good questions so you, you can um, foster this relationship with your client, I think. Right. And then if you foster that relationship, you're going to have a client. Like that's what we're trying to do, right? Is build a client base. I mean, if you work for Knowles or Outward Bound, you go out on a 30 day trip, which those are getting shorter every year. But yeah, I used to work on... for Knowles. Yes. So I know and about so, the trips. Yeah. Right. So then that those clients are gone. They're done. You don't probably ever hear from them again. Maybe you do. But we have people who want to be guided or want to learn skills. I mean, I think it's, amazing when someone comes to me and I'm like I'm so flattered that you hired me and my goal is that you learn enough that you can go out and be on your own and those people are out there and you take advantage of you know teaching them what you can teach them and being a resource for them in the future if they want to text you for a question and then there are people who are gonna need a guide and they're not gonna ever go out without a guide and those are the people that are going to sustain your career. And those are the people you have to find. I mean, on uh, March 17th, I have three of my ladies coming out from my original group from the 90s. They're all in their late 70s, turning 80. And they're all flying down to Moab. And we're, we're going to be together for three days. And, you know, I mean, it's like, okay, I'm dealing with, I get a new knee tomorrow when I fly home or, <laughs> you, know, <laughs> you know, everybody has their aches and pains, but I mean, those women have sustained my career and, you know, those are the people we, you need to find and foster. Definitely. Yeah. So you mentioned about soft skills, like, um, business skills, like, or how to communicate with your coworker, your clients. And what are the soft skills you find that probably AGA can put it in some more formal? Well, I find one thing that guides really um, come to me quite a bit about. I mean, I have a lot of just conversations with guides um, on all kinds of subjects. But um, one thing I find is that guides don't really know how to ask for their compensation. Oh, so, okay. So say hey, I'm booking a trip over to Red Rock and I don't have any other bookings around that. And I'm going to get paid my day rate or my guest guide rate going through the mountain guides. But 
that doesn't include my gas over there. It doesn't include any of my lodging or any of my food. And it doesn't include my tip. And you have to be able to ask for that stuff right up front. And I think that that's a very difficult thing for all guides to do. Yes, it's very hard for me. It's very hard. And, and I'll tell you, like, I have people constantly trying to talk me down on my day rate. Oh. And you're just like, oh, really? Well, I mean, you're a doctor. I know what you make. It's like, no, I'm, I'm not. That's the price. Like, you can go somewhere else. Like, you have to be able to tell people no. And I think the thing that guides really have a difficult time with and don't, they just don't know how to lay out how to ask for it. And really what you have to do is basically create a form letter that if you're going out for that person and that's the only account you have, then they're going to have to pay for your expenses. And if you can build other trips up around that, well, then those expenses get dispersed. And I mean, I really, in Vegas, I make all my clients put me up in a hotel. Um, I don't care if they buy me dinner, but pretty much I end up having dinner with them just because I'm at the same hotel with them. And I definitely put in there that my gas needs to be paid for along with a, a tip, a gratuity. And it's amazing that if you lay it out there and people have an understanding and there's no surprises, they'll either walk away from it or they'll take it. And if they're walking away from it, they're really not who you want as your client, in my opinion, especially if they're expected to drive over there. You know, it's not like, oh, I enjoy my job so much. I'm going to go lose money. Like, <laughs> I, I, I think that's a very good advice because a lot of newer guys, it's just like, oh, I'm, I just feel happy that I get paid to do what I like to do. But then you really have to treat this as a real job, which is a real job. It's a real job. It's a high risk job. There's mm -hmm. thin margins, you know? I mean, anything like driving over the San Rafael Swell from Moab in a snowstorm Definitely is stingy. far more deadly than anything you do out on the rock with a rope, right? Yes, definitely. And then kind of made me um, curious about like, I know that during the pro trail, you have fire campfire talks. And then I bet a lot of guys come to you with questions. What other frequently asked questions that you encounter? Um, the other one is just like permitting systems um, okay. and, and pay. Like, I mean, really, um, the permit systems are set up on federal forest service and BLM lands to, if you're working for an, uh, a, a permitted guide service, you need to be working as an employee. Right. Yes. You, you need so to have you're a not w an independent contractor. Yes. Mm -hmm. You need to have a W-2. And then also just like knowing the parameters of your permit. Um, you know, where are you supposed to guide? Like on the Grand Teton, we have date restrictions. Like we can guide the Owen Spalding. Yes. Up and though in Spalding route up until June 2nd. And then after June 2nd, we can't guide that route anymore. Oh. Um, because 
things open to the public, right? And that's more of a route that the public's going to take. So right. they pull us off of there. But Exum still, it's in their permit that they can guide there. Um, like Baxter's Pinnacle, it gets shut down for raptor closures. So nobody guides there. It's the same with Indian Creek, all the raptor closures yes. and stuff. And then, you know, it's joined... Um, the federal forces have joined with the the tribes. And so now um, everything has been restructured out there with what walls are open to guide on and what walls are shut down for, um, for raptors and pair, uh, falcons and stuff. So, so it's really like the big question I get is like, how do you know where your permit is? And like really every guide should have their permit on them along with their first aid card in case they get pulled over by a ranger. And I'm amazed how many guide services don't issue the permit to the, the guide. So, yeah, I mean, like people want to work within the parameters of their permit. They just need to be educated on what they are because there are ramifications, right? Like if you have a fatality and you're not working within your permit, well, then yes. all of a sudden what ha happens to your liability insurance what you know you're 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 leaving yourself very open and vulnerable so those are questions that i get um you know we've had really some some great speakers come like nikki smith came um and she was really inspiring and very helpful for all of us on um how to deal with the trans community and what their needs are and just like, you know, how she saw herself as a guide and where she was going on her path as a speaker and um, instructor. And I mean, I, we all just learned so much from her and then, yeah. Uh, other things are is um, harassment within the industry. Um, mm -hmm harassment with co-workers which is quite rare but definitely male clients harassing female clients we've had many um wow cases okay. and um yeah and so we've had those conversations i mean back in the day i would get in a car with a total stranger and drive them somewhere or go camp with them in a remote area I would never do that today. I would never stick a female guide in with anybody. Like everybody drives their own car, which see, it's hard for me because it's like, I want to save space at the trailhead. Right. Definitely. And you know, right. Environmental like, carpool. Yeah. And yeah. Everything. Yeah. 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 But really it's just like, yeah, you know, you can meet my guide or you can meet the guide at the Donnelly Canyon, um, parking lot in your own car. Mm. And, um, and so just like those precautions on just keeping yourself safe, checking in, checking out, like basically having, you know, a following of the guide in the field, knowing that they're where they're going to be, what car they're driving, what their license number is, when they're finished for the day that they've checked in, and then knowing what your protocol is if they're not checking back in. So, yeah, uh, We've definitely had a broad range of conversations. And, <laughs> and I'm curious, like, I am assuming that typically you are the one to give out advice. But then during all these years that mm -hmm. what, what you learned 
that from the, all these conversations and well, I think experience. Everybody has something to say at the pro track, and we're there to listen, right? And so everybody is giving advice, whether you're the brand new guide who just started as the intern, and now you're moving up through and you're guiding. Like everyone has something to say, and at the pro track, and and we are learning from everyone. But I mean, I've got a lot of years under my belt. I've been in the outdoor industry. I've met a lot of people. I have a lot of contacts, and um, I've had phenomenal climbing partners. I mean, I, you know, Rob Hess has been instrumental with me. Kirk Bachman, Eric Lidecker. Um, I mean, I have a list of women who I've been influenced by. I mean, the first time I met Catherine Freer before she died on the Hummingbird Ridge, I had just finished up climbing Dream of Wild Turkeys and I was done. And she just plowed over me with a heavy backpack with Jack Tackle at like four in the afternoon in Vegas. And they went up and completed the thing and came down in the dark. And I was like, that's a badass. That woman is a badass. And I was, you know, really inspired by her. And then being in the sport climbing circuit, I, you know, got to watch people perform like Bobby and Benzman and Robin Erdsville and Lynn Hill. And I created friends from that era of my life who are still my friends today. And, you know, having the home ec teacher who runs a river company um, and watching her deal with her all male staff and, getting fired early on like that's a character builder and you know I just feel like I've had so many great influences and even my clients it's like these women who are coming out to be with me like one of them owns one of the major ski areas in country and these women are all thoughtful educated they're beautiful I mean it's like wow I I want to be you when I'm 79 and 80 you know I, you know, so yeah, there's a lot of inspiration out there. Yeah. I think one of the most beautiful thing about guiding is you meet all sorts of people from all sorts of disciplines. Yeah. 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 And then they, well, and I think too, like, I think I just highly respect like all the young women and men coming up through the ranks to guide. I mean, I really see like, a level of seriousness with women who are getting their pins. Like, you know, my good friend and climbing partner who I work with at Jackson Hole Mount Guides, uh, Lisa Van Skyver, like she's on the path to this pin and she is like a tremendous talent. Like Julia Niles is a good friend of mine. Um, meeting you. Um, I mean, I think I hired you for the mountain guides. I was like, oh yeah, we have a job. You just got your, your thing. We got a job for you Ding, ding, you want to work? You know, there's work for women. And I just admire all the women who are in the industry, who are out there putting themselves out there every day, no matter what their home life situation is. And, you know, they're trying to make it work for themselves. And it's, it's really amazing. I mean, who would have ever thought? I, I never would have imagined I could be a guide ever. Mm. Yeah. I mean, even my mother before she passed away, my my like my ninety seven year old mother before she passed away, she said, 
I just can't believe anyone would pay that kind of money to go out with you for the day. It's like <laughs> when we would go skiing, we would take the whole family for a hundred dollars for the day. And I and she's like, she couldn't even conceive that, that you would get a ski lesson or you know, hire a guy to like I could have I could have used a ski lesson mm -hmm. <laughs> when I was younger but yeah it's it's interesting i mean i think the industry is just go is just growing yeah and, and that uh, kind of made me curious but not without in it this industry for this long like what kind of changes like other than it's just growing and growing what other changes you've seen is that notable it, I, it's growing but i think like like we're fostering new guides at a high rate People are working on their pins. People are working on their disciplines. So we see that growing. We see the educational end of guiding growing. Um, we see guide services in play. Um, I think what we're seeing that is different is we're seeing access issues. Mm -hmm. um, we're going to see, like, we are seeing access issues limited, like, especially here in Moab. Um, where we have so much public land around us. We're right now fighting out towards um, the Goonie Bird and Gemini Bridges. They're trying to shut down 325 square miles of off-road vehicle use, which, I mean, there's all kinds of outdoor recreation users. It's called multiple use for a reason. And so for me, I just don't like seeing one discipline being shut down because that sets a precedence for the rest of us to lose access. So I'm, I'm a firm believer in multiple use and people having access to their public lands. And so I think as guide services, everybody's a little more on edge on, you know, are they going to lose a permitted area? And for what reasons are they going to lose that too? Are they going to lose it for uh, bighorn sheep migration? Are they going to lose it because uh, they don't want uh, recreational vehicles in that area? So then if the recreational vehicles aren't in that area, then how are you going to get to that tower that you want to climb to? Are you yes. going to walk a 10 mile round trip? You know, so it affects us all. So I think that's, to me, the biggest change is that, you know, we have to be a little more on guard with access. And I know that the Mount uh, AMGA has, um, I think his name is Matt, who's in yeah, position Wade, and Matt Jason Wade. Keith. Yes. Matt Wade and Jason Keith, those guys are definitely doing their due diligence to, to keep access open for guides and guide services. So yeah, and that's how you have a voice, right? Through the access fund, through the AMGA, um, through the American Alpine Club. Those organizations help give climbers and guides a voice. Definitely. And how about because early, early in the conversation, you mentioned that back then, um, the guiding is quite different because and then nowadays client clients come out and they have because people train nowadays, they have facilities, so they have a clear goal. So how did you see the the client base change? Like, what kind of change did that you transition? See? Yes. Yeah. Um, well, I guess the thing is, you know, you always have to. I mean, we have a, a standard with the AMGA on what you need to be climbing as a guide, yes. which I think it's five eleven now. And I've always felt like 
I've always been inspired to climb 512. Whether I'm climbing it or not, I'm always inspired to be on those harder routes to try to get those routes. I mean, when I was younger, I could on-site 512, but, you know, things change. And so I have to I have to work for that, and I have to train for that. And so I've always been a firm believer that you have to always be climbing over whatever level you're going to be guiding. And all of a sudden, I just remember being in the Red Rock and just going, wow, okay, like we've got this many multi-pitches we're going to do in this many days. And then this person wants to jump on this 511 and they got it, you know, like they got every pitch. And I was like, it's transforming. Things are changing. People are training. People are coming out strong. Mountain Project came on board. All of a sudden we have, you know, a crowd sharing resource on climbing routes and, and people have a photo at their fingertips. And so um, it just all came to fruition for me in the Red Rock. And I was like, all right, game on. Like if you're not climbing at 511 on your own, you're not really guiding. And, um, you know, I mean, I'm definitely grateful that I've always just had a very willful, head and I've always been you know very driven and I love climbing I love movement and I have my little tread wall my ancient tread wall I train on and you know you have to be strong like that's the main thing Mm -hmm. like you have to keep yourself strong and movement is in my opinion everything like being able to keep that movement going yeah so wow so it seems that I mean, I do train myself, but since I nowadays as a guy, you take care, take good care of yourself, train, and also you need to be business savvy too. Yeah, yeah, and yeah, and you can't get injured. I mean, I've been really lucky. I've never had a knee injury. You know, I've always been able to like kind of tape myself back together. Yeah, and, so you know, God about forbid. Injury, do do you? Yeah, you, you mentioned that the second time. So what do you look out for yourself to try to avoid getting injured? Yeah, I mean, I train only like I have only huge holds on my tread wall jugs. Mm-hmm. I don't train on crimpers. Right. I did have a lot of tendonitis when I was younger, um, just on crimpy, crimpy holds. And then, I mean, crack climbing, crack climbing is like, once you really get good at certain sizes and everything, it's like a stupid bar trick, right? You're just hanging <laughs> off your bones. So <laughs> crack climbing kind, kind of saves you. The only thing that does for me that's not super positive is carrying all that gear at my age. I'm like, oh, God, why couldn't I have been doing this when I was younger, hauling this huge rack? But, um, yeah, I mean, it's really about just, like, keeping up with running and hiking and yoga i never did yoga and i do a lot of yoga now which has really been good for me and i never ran started running until i was 40 and i started running at 40 and i was like i love this there's no backpack you can go forever and i didn't know i could run and living in moab i have some of the best trails just right above my house and so i just feel like 
you know, I'm not much of a bike rider, not much of a biker, even though I do ride my bike a little bit, but skiing and hiking, like all of that, just trying to do everything in moderation and keeping yourself hydrated. I mean, that's the hardest part for me is trying to stay hydrated. Yeah, especially I just feel like I have in the desert country. Right, you feel like you're evaporating. Right? I know. I, I, in Red Rock, I always feel like I don't drink enough, so I can't yeah. totally understand. I'm sure you don't. <laughs> Probably not. Yeah. Oh, um, funny. And let's talk a little bit about the women's network that you're doing. I just saw actually this morning. It's interesting. I just mountain guy just sent out to say, "Oh, you know, we have this." Uh, uh, starting the women's uh, crack climbing in Moab. So, um, well, I think for so I think for me, like I started, I I started the women's network. I don't know how many years ago, but we've always kind of done women's programs at the Mountain Guides. But we also at the Mountain Guides have branches now in Colorado. We have a branch in Moab. We have the Red Rock branch. We've got uh, the Tetons. We have winter programs, skiing, avalanche courses in the Tetons. We have Red Rock. And so it's like, you know, I started looking at our roster. I did this um, kind of women's history post for the Mountain Guides for the month of March a while back. And I started going through the history of all the women who have worked for the Mountain Guides. And I was like, damn, we've had a lot of women work for us. You know, we've had... Nancy Carson in there. We've had um, Sue Miller, Chris Ann Crisdale, Catherine Miller, Lynn Wolf. I mean, we've always had a history of women working for the mountain guides. And, you know, and then Catherine Jackson, she was a, a great mentor of mine and a, one of the first w women guides in the Tetons working for Exum. And I was like, why not just put together affordable clinics, courses, throughout the year at these different locations, offer up the women we have working in these locations, the opportunity to work with these women. And hopefully these are feeder programs that you can actually end up pulling clients from and progressing them into their next steps. And we have all of these locations. It's very unique. Um, to be able to try to get a course in any of those places at any given weekend throughout the season, get an avalanche course through the women's network. And really, I just wanted it to be a, an opportunity for women to have, to be able to come out, take an affordable course, join in a network where they actually make friends, maybe a new climbing partner, meet a guide that, they can have as a mentor and then it's also an opportunity for guides i mean it's not the highest paying program that we offer but it's also an opportunity for female guides to work on their craft with women and hopefully build a client base from that maybe you can pull a client from that who desires to go climb epinephrine or they want to climb crimson chrysalis and you can pull that person from that program and work with them on that so that was my vision on it 
Um, and I mean, there's lots of women's programs happening out there, but, um, yeah. And these are just day programs you meet for the day. We're not really camping with each other, but definitely people all end up going to dinner together. It seems like, and yeah, it's just a, a program where women can connect and not feel like their pocketbook is getting broken over the whole thing. And then figure out like, where are they with their climbing and how do they want to move forward? Are they someone who's going to need a guide or do they have specific goals? Maybe they've realized, man, I think I'm ready to go take an SBI course. You know, it's just, I just wanted it to be a program where women can work with women. They can support each other. They can uplift each other. And that, you know, that there are a network of women out there. I mean, when I started climbing, it was high noon. If you saw another woman out climbing, it was all men. Now you go to the crag and the men are outnumbered. Yes. Yeah, I, I can see that. I mean, there are definitely a lot more women climbing nowadays outside, yeah. inside. Yeah. Too. And, and I, I remember one day I was climbing with um, Emma Madeira and we went and we did uh, Sister Superior. And I remember coming down and I was thinking, and we like basically ruined my Honda Element driving it out there and getting it through the crux of the road to get to the base of the, the talus cone. And I remember thinking, damn, we just went and did all that. And we had not a single male influence for the day to get us where we were and to complete that thing in really good style. You know, it was like, I was proud. I was like, you know, I I totally have the helm here. And women can do that. Like, we can do that. Yeah. And I mean, I've never been subject. I'm not a gym rat. I've never lived where there's really a gym other than the Teton Rock gym. And then I never, ever went to the enclosure. But I've never been a, a, a gym climber. So I don't really know what goes on within the walls of a gym. Because I've always been an outdoor climber. And it's like. I don't know. I've just never really felt any of the sexism or scrutiny that I think a lot of women feel. So I'm, I'm not really privy to that, but I do understand that it does happen. And I don't know. I'm really fortunate that I've, I was raised outdoors. You know, I grew up in, with an outdoor lifestyle. Yeah. Are you, you saying that you dialed back a little bit of guiding work? So what's mm -hmm. your future look like, you know, for the at least next five, 10 years? Yeah. Um, well, I've got some things I'm working on with the mountain guides. Um, so what is ProTrack? One is launching the women's network and I'm handing, I'm handing stuff over. Um, I still have about 14 towers to climb for my hundred tower pursuits. Um, I'm working on a development project with my husband, um, here in Moab. We have a, I bought land back in 2002 here and I subdivided it and we're putting, um, the two final structures on, um, this little minor subdivision that we have. So it's kind of all hands on deck right now with that project. Um, and then my husband has his business, um, now that he's retired from being a pilot. Um, our goals are spending more time together um, since our lives have been really quite apart. Um, 
So climbing regularly, we definitely go down to Lake Powell. We climb in Arizona quite a bit. Uh, the Western Desert is all new and opening up to us um, of Utah. Moab is getting really crowded. I mean, I really feel like I've had quite a heyday here and um, I'm definitely pushing out to other areas that are more remote and more chossy. And <laughs> yeah, I mean, you, you mentioned yeah. about your 100 tower project. So you say you yeah. still have 14 to go. But yeah, for me, I actually tried, I, I've done 40 towers myself, but I feel that once you hit a certain number, maybe 20 or 30, then you, you start to need to climb on charts. Totally right. Like after I was like at after 20, the summits all start to suck. Right. So, <laughs> <laughs> right. So like I've gone back like a couple years ago, Kit Delorier, I, I didn't free um, the flower tower on the Bridger Jacks. And I was like, I really like don't want to count it unless you like really get the summit. Like right. I really, I backed off the summit. It was so scary and chossy. And so she went back out there with me and I got through the summit and I was just like, yeah, these summits suck after a certain <laughs> point. It's like, you got to get it done on your first round or you're not coming back maybe. So yeah, so I'm trying to chart that path on what those towers are. Um, we've had a challenging winter here. It's been super wet. Like we're at, 222% of snowpack. We still have snow down to the valley floor on north aspects and the rock's been wet and we had our coldest temperature I think in 40 years this week yeah, at this night. Red is really bad. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So anyway, um and plus we're working on this building project but yeah, I mean spring's coming and um everybody starts showing up to be your climbing partner again. So I'm just looking forward to uh, moving forward this spring and, you know, I'm not as strong as I should be. So I need to get strong. And um, right now I'm refurbishing a clawfoot tub that I'm, I'm restoring that I've got because um, I'm building an outdoor bathroom for when guides show up and park um, on our, on my property here um, to work. Um, so they'll have an outdoor bathroom along with this stuff up front or up on our upper property. And then I'm working on my stuff at city of rocks, um, as well. And that's really where I see myself being in the future. I've got eight acres out there that I'm going to go plant all my trees and planting trees, saplings, getting the water in and the power in just doing some basic infrastructure this season. But I really see myself spending more time up in Idaho um, and triangulating between Arizona, Utah and uh, Idaho. And then hopefully things open up a little easier with travel. I mean, a lot of people are traveling, but um, we really enjoy um, diving and we spend quite a bit of time in like Belize and Grand Cayman and the Caribbean. And so we're hoping to get back down there, but we really have like this focus project on this uh, building that we're doing and kind of consumes your time. Definitely. <laughs> and you, I'm actually curious about 
the guiding scene in City of Rocks. Like for me, I, I know it's not too far from Salt Lake City,、um, but for me, I don't go there that often because the driving for me is a little bit. Yeah, it's remote. It's yeah, remote. it is remote. So, do people go there? Like because in in Vegas, people people come. It's easy. So easy. It, Hotels. Right, definitely. So, how how's the city of rock guiding thing? Is that enough? Well, it's enough for me at this point in my career, by all means. But it's logistically there's a lot of work with it. You know, like if you you have to everything's on a reservation system with the campsites. There is one hotel in town.、Um, there are some Airbnbs sprouting up. Um, all your food needs to really be brought in.、Um, there's one restaurant that now just recently opened back up.、Um, the country store serves lunch, and you can actually have the ladies who own Tracy's Country Store do some catering for you. But for the most part, there's some also some RV camps that have popped up right outside of the park, which I prefer to like use the RV parks that have popped up outside of the park. For reservations, for camping, for guests, just because I have cell phone, and it's not easy for people. If you're traveling from New York, you fly into Salt Lake City, and you Google how to get from Salt Lake City to the City of Rocks, it will put you on a myriad of back roads that will certainly blow your tire. So you have to constantly be managing your people as they're coming into you. And then it's a place where you have to spend a couple days. You know, you can't just come for the day. And it's a place where a guide has to travel to, right?、Yes. So you have to build all of your work up around certain dates so that you can, you know, manage any of your expenses. So, yeah. So, and then also it's a complicated system out there. Like you work with the City of Rocks with a permit. And then you also have to have a license through Idaho Guides and Outfitters, which is a complicated process in itself. So I pay like every year since 1985, I've paid anywhere from a rate of $75 to $125 to have a license to guide out there. And that licensing program started with the Idaho Guides and Outfitters for hunting guides and river guides. Um, and then mountaineering, technical mountaineering, and skiing was put under there along with fly fishing. And so it's a very layered process. Like what, you have your AMGA credentials, you have your first aid credentials. You need your Idaho Guides and Outfitters license, and then you need to be a permit holder to work under a permit. So it's not the easiest place to work, and it's remote.、Uh, um, I just feel really fortunate that my dream came true that I was able to buy land out there because that's been a life lifelong dream of mine and it happened in 2021 and now I'm working on getting my little my little homestead out there、nice. and、uh, yeah. and being able to have guides and friends and you know it's yeah it's really my my dream to have a place where everybody can come to and. Feel welcome as yeah, guides、definitely. and climbers. Yeah, definitely. I think your rocks is is very special for you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I just and I, yeah, I have a history there for sure.、Um, 
I mean, even as a young child, my dad would drive us out there on a Sunday and we would run all over those rocks, you know, and that's when it was totally overgrazed by J.R. Simplot and all his cattle and it wasn't a reserve or anything, you know. And then we would go there in college and climb and, you know, do community service projects like clean up fire pits and, you know, stuff like that. So, yeah. So that's really what I'm looking forward to and spending a lot of time with my husband and all my climbing friends and ski buddies. Nice. Doing more exploring down at Glen Canyon and Lake Powell. Well, we've been talking. I, I'm taking out a lot of your time right now, but still, I'm one. I'm wondering, say, if some people come to you and they're just starting out, say, a female guy just starting out, is still kind of nervous. What kind of advice or encouragement that, that you might give to them? Well, I think it's important to find what your mission is, like. How do you really see yourself as a guide? Do you see yourself as a career guide? Is it transitional, like we spoke about earlier? And then really just finding your voice, you know, and really trying to connect with other women who guide, connect with your male friends who guide, go out and climb with all these people. Um, you know, climbing, going out and climbing on your own and, and being with your contemporary and friends is so important I mean we can all just get pigeonholed into that whole guide routine and you know that becomes really mechanical and I just think it's important to you know you have to put yourself out there and that's really really scary and when you do that you've got to be able to go through your day and then you have to debrief yourself I mean I had some serious debriefing with myself when you get a bad review from absolutely every client in the women's ski camp. <laughs> like you don't think that makes you go home and take pause and figure out how you're going to run your day. I mean, as much as that was hurtful, it was one of the best learning experiences I ever had and growth experiences I ever had. So I think you have to be able to like not take yourself too seriously, but you also have to be able to critique yourself and you have to be able from the words of Lynn Wolf, did I really pull the day off or did I just get away with it? And I, I think, yeah. yeah. And that's Lynn, that's Lenny speaking. And that will always resonate with me. I was able to guide under her when I started working in the Tetons. She showed me the ropes up there and, you know, I'll just never forget it. It's like, yeah, did I really pull the day off in good style or did I just get away with some stuff? And you have to be able to look at that and, and you have to be able to speak up. I mean, I know I've always been someone who will kind of just like shy away and just go, Oh, screw it. Like I'm going to just go off here and like, deal with my own my own scene and I've always kind of been a little bit of an outsider like I can't say that I mean I have great friends but it's not like I'm just the person that rolls in and everybody's my buddy in the guide service you know like you know I'm not, not Doug Coombs you know like Doug Coombs walks into a room and everybody feels like they're his friend like I don't have that kind of uh that kind of personality and charisma 
But uh, so you have to work at things like it's work at the end of the day. Guiding is work, but it's really beautiful, rewarding work. Like it's unbelievable to me that you can sit up on top of a ledge anywhere in the Red Rock and bring someone up to you and watch the traffic go by or be up on the elephant's perch and watch the biplane circle by every hour on its flight scene tour. And that's your job as all the like green swifts come up and fly next to you. Like that's my job. It's amazing. It's really an incredible, it's incredible. I can't believe people hire guides. (laughs) (laughs) I'm grateful for them. Every one of them. Yeah, it's uh, it's really nice to hear you said that you just love this job. Yeah, because yeah. I know a lot of people have doubts and fear, and and I I bet you probably have that from time to time. Oh yeah, uh, all the time, of course. But you have to just like get up. I'm like, you know, I've been working on some stuff about uh, how I how I was raised and how I grew up. And trying to figure out where I got this drive that I have. And when I was a small child, my father took me fishing quite a bit. And he took me fishing at this lake in Idaho, Twin Lakes, and put me in some hip waders. I mean, I was six, five or six. I was little. Gabe said, oh, there's a bass out there. You just fish this hole. You're going to be fine. I'll, I'll be back. So he put me in these waders. I'm out fishing this hole. And like this horrible storm comes in. And like I get out of the water. All I've been doing is tangling my line and the snags around me. So I just pulled out of the water, sat back. And I watched people in panic coming in with their boats. Like really a sense of panic was coming in. Lightning, the wake increased. And all of a sudden I'm like, huh. Well, I know he said he was coming back here, and I'm waiting and I'm waiting. Well, I don't know how long I waited. I'm little, right? So how how does time pass? And then all of a sudden, my dad comes ripping up in the station wagon in a pure panic. And he had been driving on the highway home and looked over and saw my shoes on the passenger side of the car and went, oh, my God, I left my kid back there fishing in a huge storm. He came back and he got me and we, he took me out for a burger and a milkshake on the way home. And like, it was the best burger and the best milkshake I ever had. But more than anything, it was like, I had time with my dad that I wasn't sharing with my seven sisters and we never talked about it. Like that was like the thing. We just never talked about it until later in life. And, and then I realized like, he also would take me out fishing in the Beckler Meadows, which is high bear territory, and he would just leave me. And I wouldn't even fish. I would just be on guard. I would be like, <laughs> oh, my God. Like, I'm not fishing because this is bear territory. Like, I could get eaten by a bear. And it was really unnerving. And I think those experiences with my dad, just being a hardworking man and supporting eight kids, and his wife goes back to college, to, you know, to work on her art degree. Like, my dad busted his ass and he was a outdoorsman all he wanted to do is fish and ski and hunt birds and I never thought it was a problem but I realized like 
he instilled in me that I needed to share knowledge and help people stay safe. <laughs> I'm like, I think those incidences, <laughs> I think those childhood incidences kind of set the foundation for me to be a guide. <laughs> so that's all kind of funny. But uh, definitely his enjoyment of the outdoors and working hard and exploding into the outdoor after your work week is definitely something that became infectious with me. And uh, yeah, anyway, yeah, that's kind of a well, funny that, little story. That's funny. And in the meantime, it's also beautiful, too. I'm glad that you survived. Funny. Yeah. Um, yeah, so thank you so much for your time and anything you you think you still want to say to our listeners or just go out and join the day. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to go get my tub finished before the next snowstorm comes in. Ooh. We're expecting storm on Wednesday, so. we Yes, it's, just, yeah. it's going to snow again to Wednesday here too. Wednesday, Thursday, uh, Friday. Yeah. yeah, this winter has been really cold. It has been. I moved out of Jackson, so I didn't have to do 10 degrees. <laughs> but now you do. But hopefully just for this winter. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. Well, thanks, Ting Ting. Yeah. So good to see you again. I guess I haven't done a podcast or webinar with you since 57 hours. Yes. Yeah. So, yeah, I love the so thing. I love the conversation. It's been a while. And thank you for all the wisdom yeah. that you share with us. Yeah.